You're listening to the Volleyball by Design podcast. Today, we have a special guest, a former All-American professional volleyball player and national team player, Isaac Newbel, who is more known as a biomechanics practitioner in which he's been training thousands of athletes all over the U.S. on how to properly use biomechanics to fix certain skills. And today, we're going to talk all about the attack hitting whether you're a middle left side opposite you're going to get value out of today's episode so stay tuned hi i'm coach brian singh and after 11 years coaching competitive volleyball and as a head coach of a college team i've become obsessed with helping athletes and coaches improve their knowledge and skills of the game by teaching them how to train efficiently and effectively to ultimately reach their volleyball goals i've created the volleyball by design podcast to give you simple actionable step-by-step strategies so you can get clarity and apply what you learn right away this is the volleyball by design podcast what's up ladies and gentlemen welcome to episode 29 of the Volleyball by Design podcast. I'm Coach Brian Singh, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to welcome you today. We've got a couple announcements, but before we get into those, I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're a new listener, man, you got a great episode for you today. And as well, you have a couple episodes to get caught up on, 28 episodes to be exact. And if you are a regular listener, you know as well as I do that today is going to be another episode where I'm hoping to deliver a ton of value. If, if, but actually, it's not me that's going to be delivering a ton of value. It's going to be our guest, who is a former professional volleyball player in Europe. He's also a former national team and All-American uh, volleyball player. His name is Isaac Newbel. And this guy is what I say... He's a practitioner of science. He understands the biomechanics of your body and he uses that information to make you a better volleyball player in ways that even I was able to take that I'm going to be applying to my college team. So it's things that you don't think about, movements of your body that can really help you develop better passing, better hitting, and so forth. But today we're going to talk more about hitting. Well, before I get into this this interview with Isaac, I do want to let you know that if you've been listening for the last couple of weeks, you know what I'm going to say, but January 3rd, and I added another date, January 4th, so pick a date, January 3rd or January 4th is my coach's workshop. You do not want to miss this workshop. It's completely free, and we're going to talk, we're going to talk about offense. We're going to talk about offensive philosophy, offensive systems, offensive strategies. It is going to be a, a workshop which is going to have a ton of value that you're going to be able to take back to your team and apply right away. So go to volleyballworkshop.com. That's www.volleyballworkshop.com. It's going to be in the show notes as well. Go to it, get registered right away so you can secure your spot for this online workshop that I can't wait to dive into and see you in there. Let's start off 2021 on a really good note on a really good foot so we can, you know, add a ton of value to our team. But without further ado, let's get into this episode with Isaac Newball, the bio, I don't, how do you want to call it, biopracticianer expert, as I'd like to call him, biomechanics practitioner expert. There you go. So enjoy. All right. We got Isaac Newball. Did I say that right? Isaac Newball? Yes. Yes. All right. Perfect. We got Isaac Newball on the pod today. For you, for my listeners, and uh, let me tell you, you guys are gonna—you're in for a great show. We got a ton of great value, as I mentioned in the in the intro. 
biomechanics practitioner. That's what this guy is all about biomechanics. And he has a ton of value to share. Um, and let's just, uh, first of all, Isaac, welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really happy to be here. And that was a very kind intro. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. All right, well, let's get let's get right into it for our listeners. Um, let's talk about who you are. Let me hear your story, your journey. Uh, tell me who Isaac Newbel is and where he came from. <laughs> uh, well, I was born and raised in Maui. Um, I'm, I'm a bunch of different things, as most people are in Hawaii. I'm a mix of a bunch of uh, different ethnicities: Hawaiian, Samoan, and then white, um, and that's Irish, Portuguese, French. Uh, my dad's family was from American Samoa, and then my mom's family was from Hawaii. Um, and I grew up playing beach volleyball because of my parents um, at a place uh, in, in Kihei on the uh, south side of the island. Um, and that's kind of the, my, my first touch of, of volleyball and the volleyball life was on the beach. All right. So let's talk about from the beach, your volleyball journey. How'd you get into, basically you, you, you went to, you played pro volleyball, you play on the national team. How did we get there? So, um, my, my first, my first actual indoor experience was in the sixth grade and, um, they were really good family, family friends of mine ended up being kind of what we call in Hawaii, might like my Hanai parents. It's kind of your adopted parents. Um, they were very passionate about volleyball and it was for a school team. It was my intermediate school team called Kalama school and they had a tryout. <clears throat> and so went to the tryout and like, Oh man, this, this kid has some talent. And I had, I had never been coached. It was just on the beach. And, um, so that started out my, my indoor journey. And then for the next three years, I played on that school team and we would play other schools around the Island, um, and I was kind of a standout. And I was also playing soccer at the same time. I was a kind of an all-around athlete. And when it came time for, for high school, um, I had to make a decision um, whether or not to stay on Maui or actually to go to or try to get into Kamehameha School, which is one of the private schools in Hawaii for kids of Hawaiian ancestry. Uh, Michael Ma'a went there. And... Um, actually, sorry, he went to Punahou. His father was my coach. So Micah Ma'a's coach, Pono Ma'a, was my high school coach. So Micah was a little runt running around our practices. Uh, but anyway, to digress, I ended up getting into Kamehameha School. And uh, at that time, it was still, uh, there was only still one school. So I had to go to a board. It was a boarding school on the island of Oahu. Um, and... I, my, my, my parents were, this was all new to them. And when I had gotten in, we, we didn't even know about tryouts or any of that stuff. They, we had no idea. And so when I got there, I just assumed, oh, okay, maybe I can go to the tryout and tryouts were already happening for like two weeks. So I went to the varsity tryout and it was like the last day and tried out and they're like, okay, you know, it's, you you know, came, you came a little late, you should probably go down to, to the JV tryout. So got on JV um, and I played there for a year and then I moved up to varsity my, uh, my sophomore year in high school. Um, and then from there, we <clears throat> got to the state championships that year, my sophomore year. Gosh, I can barely even remember now. We lost. Oh, we lost to Punahou. <laughs> we lost to Punahou, who was the who was the other powerhouse 
um, kind of our rival school. Um, and that left a real bad taste in my mouth. So trained a whole bunch. And the next two years, we ended up um, being state champions. And I got uh, player of the year, co-player of the year my junior year, and then player of the year my uh, my senior season as well. <clears throat> so that was kind of like intermediate high school. <clears throat> and then my senior year is when I got recruited to play at Cal State Northridge. Um, but I didn't, I didn't actually play club volleyball until my junior year in high school. Again, I, my, my parents didn't really know much about it. And usually like, you know, your parents kind of push you in that direction or whatever. That's pretty impressive considering your, your journey and you started late. R- real late, um, at least in the, in the club volleyball world. But I, you know, I was playing on Outrigger Canoe Club, which at that time was, a, was pretty much the, the best club at the time. So got, you know, some, some recognition. And then my senior season after the, the, the high school season had ended, we actually formed our own team. It was called the Hawaii All-Stars. It was coached by this guy named Rick Toon who had played at Hawaii and then at uh, Pepperdine. He transferred to Pepperdine his like last uh, year. Anyway, he's a very good coach. And it was called the What Y'all Stars. So we, we grabbed a whole bunch of the best guys from around the island. Another one was a guy named Jonathan Charette, who played at BYU. He's now a coach at uh, Long Beach City College. Um, he was the other kind of big gun. And another guy, um, uh, Max DeWolf, Sean Carney. So all of these names that had kind of been around volleyball um, made, that, made that team. And then we ended up tying for third my senior year um, in club. And I think that's kind of when his name was Pat Lufrano. He was an assistant coach at Northridge at the time, really liked my game. And he was a big proponent of me actually getting recruited because I wasn't, I wasn't a huge name. You know, I, I was in Hawaii, but I, I, you know, no one really knew who I was and I was kind of undersized. Um, so it was because of him actually that, I was able to to get into Cal State Northridge, um, and that's kind of when my my college journey started. And then and then from there, I'm just assuming killed it in college. <laughs> how, how, <laughs> how did how did you get to the pro scene? It's really you know well, what, that that pro transition is not easy. No, but neither was college, man. That's I, true. I, I had um, so my my vision of what was going to happen right after being a player of the year and and thinking you're hot shit is you think you go and you're going to have all the success. And I, we, we, I get to Northridge and I realize I'm like, man, the, the level is much higher than I was anticipating. Um, and so I actually ended up redshirting my first year and it gave you time, right. To get used to the pace, to get used to the speed. And the, the one, the one reason why I could always hang was because I could, I, I could control the ball very well. I was a very, very, very good passer. And so that was, was really my, my avenue into making it into like, you know, the starting teams. And then finally, when it came to my freshman year, it just so happened that I, I had kind of like gotten my way into the starting lineup because they needed ball control, you know, and it's like, it wasn't a Northridge. Wasn't this, this uh, huge powerhouse. They were always kind of mid tier 
and they got guys that were kind of under the radar. I was more of like one of the volleyball ones that they got under the radar, but they usually just got good athletes, trained them, and then they would compete. But because they needed guys who could pass, I started from my freshman year and, but I struggled offensively and, and trying to gain confidence. And funny enough, we went to a preseason tournament in Canada in, um, what's, what's Alberta. Was oh, Alberta. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and actually I did very well at that tournament and I had gained some confidence, but it was tough, man. It was a rough road for the first couple of years. Um, but I started cause I, cause they couldn't take me off of the floor. They, they just couldn't take me off. I was probably more of a liability offensively as I kind of got used to the speed and pace. And at that time, throughout my college career, I would learn later on that I had been swinging incorrectly my entire life. And so a lot of the, the big, big growth that I had as a, as a player happened after college. But anyway, so I uh, played in college um, and then finally come my senior year, kind of took on a little bit more of a leadership role, was still a passing kind of supportive outside to a guy named Eric Vance, uh, another kind of undersized, but very, very good outside hitter offensive. Uh, but that's when I had found my rhythm as, a, as an outside hitter. You know, I hit a very fast ball. My vision got better, but I was still hitting incorrectly, um, kind of just doing whatever I thought was right. Um, and then, you know, I had a became a, an All-American. And because of, again, because of my passing, not my hitting, because of my passing, um, I was able to get invited to, and, and because I was an All-American, I got invited to train on the national team. And then that started kind of my, my journey after, after college. Um, and that was right during the time that Hugh McCutcheon was transitioning out. That was after the 2008 Olympics when the men's team won. And it was kind of, a, it, it was a weird time, but I had him for a little bit and he was one of the guys that was big on, on science and the mechanics part. Um, and he was my, he was basically the reason why I had changed form. And then he was sort of the reason why he, I, I went on the path of eventually teaching and coaching biomechanics um because he was really really big on that stuff um but it was two other coaches there was a guy named jamie morrison and ron larson who really spent a lot of time with me trying to take me through the process of change so that's when he was the first one who said hey you're swinging wrong and he had he had talked about sequencing and i didn't know what the hell he was talking about although I, my education was in kinesiology. I was an exercise science major. And, you know, you know, you learn about biomechanics, anatomy, physiology, muscle physiology, all that stuff. But until you have to really use it, you don't really understand. It's just information in your head. Um, so as the, the time went on and I was, I was going through this really arduous process of change, that's when my own education started to make a lot more sense to me. Um, so finally made the, made the change. I would go in for, for time after every single practice for hours and hours and hours. Cause it was really important to me. Volleyball was everything. Like that's, that's all I saw from when I was a, a little tiny kid in sixth grade, super driven. I would go out and train every day. I would, so volleyball was everything and it mattered to me. And so finally I, I made the switch and I was just like, Oh my God, what was I doing? I couldn't believe it. And, um, 
So that following summer, and again, I was brought on the national team to play libero, not as an outside, but it just so happened that they needed outsides. And so I ended up playing outside the entire time. And I was kept on with the, with the main group, the summer group that had come back as a libero. So then it was the, basically the A2 squad I went with, and that was with Dustin Watton, a guy named Tyler Hildebrand, who's a, a really brilliant coach, and a lot of other guys that are still playing. Max Holt was on that team, uh, Brian Thornton, uh, an Olympian, uh, a lot of guys, a lot of really, really solid guys. We went down to Chiapas, Mexico, and that's when we had won the, the was it Norsecas? I think it was Norseca. Um, and uh, that was my first taste of actually international volleyball. But again, I was playing libero at the time. Um, and I had gotten, so I was working with an agent, uh, uh, Sim Grattan from Canada, actually. And it was, it was because of that national team resume and my uh, four years of playing outside hitter that I was recruited or, or I got a contract to play outside hitter in Austria with Dustin Snyder, who was at that tournament. Um, and we had played, um, I think it was in the finals, actually, we played against them. So it was, it was a really funny series of events. But that is my story in a nutshell to my professional season. Wow, that's crazy. So I took a couple takeaways from that. So one, so Micah's dad is just getting all the best players in the world and bringing them on. Like, does he, does he know something that no one else does? Because every time I talk to someone, they've been either recruited or trained or was on a club team with Micah's dad. So that's really funny. Um, <laughs> And then uh, two, and I like this one, is passing. You talked about the fact that you made a starting, you made a starting rotational spot because you had the ability to pass. Oh, yeah. Like, that is crucial. That, that's a lesson in itself for anyone that's listening. Right. I, I always say serving and passing. Like, sorry. the best serving and passing teams are going to win, especially, yep. sorry, that's my, my daughter here. <laughs> hey, you got to go out. Dad's doing an interview. Yeah, so the, the takeaways about passing, I mean, um, serving and passing, two most important skills of our game. Yeah. And it's crazy that if you have the ability to pass in ball control, you have the ability, whether, for, forget about your offensive ability, you can potentially not only make a team, but play minutes because of your ability to pass. So that's a huge lesson for listeners out there. Um, you know, stop focusing on offense so much and really dial into your serve, receive, and ball control. Totally. And, then, um, and then the last thing... Uh, I mean, everyone has different journeys to pros, national team and stuff like that. Like you redshirted and you made your way up because of the amount of, you know, work and hours and put it. And what I like too, about your story is that you, you figured out that, you know, your, your hitting was off and, you know, biomechanically there was things that were missing and you studied it, you understood it and you trained it and look what happened. Like it's, it's really, really cool, which is a nice segue into, let's talk about biomechanics, which I know all our listeners are excited to hear about. So let's get into the biomechanics of swinging. I don't even know where to start. So I'm just going to give you full reins to take over and uh, talk about it. Sure. Sure. Um, so one of the, one of the main things that, that listeners or whoever coaches, anybody um, needs to understand is uh, the concept of, of rotation. So the funny thing is rotation is how we make sense of our world, how we make sense of the universe. Um, everything rotates tires on a car you hit a pen off of a table it spins you rotate a door handle to open things so rotation is the foundation of almost everything 
in, in this world. And so it's no different when you, when you get to the human body. And in the human body, there's, at least for the overhead throwing motion, there's something called the kinetic chain in overhead throwing. Um, there's different kinetic chains in other movements, but the kinetic chain in overhead throwing dictates that there's basically three phases that the body goes through, rotational phases, right? Again, that, that word rotation is going to come up a lot. So the body produces force most efficiently through rotation. And if you really think about it, you, you think about boxing, right? In order to throw a proper punch, you know, there's rotation at the hip, then the torso. And then if you think about baseball or football or the javelin throw or golf, all of these sports, there is rotation happening. So understanding that rotation is the foundation, very, very important. And so in the kinetic chain, we talked about those three phases. It goes, hips need to rotate first, torso needs to rotate second, and then the shoulder joint goes through internal and external rotation third. So those three uh, phases of rotation are critical to proper biomechanics. Um, the, the problem that a lot of people have is they don't know that. Um, they don't know that, that hitting or volleyball, the volleyball swing, the volleyball spike is an overhead throwing motion. Most of the time they think because it's a different sport and you're not overhead throwing, somehow it's different, but it's not. And so science is, has you know, given us all of these keys so you can think of the swing as just an airborne throw. Yes, we're not throwing something, we're hitting an object, but your body and your shoulder are going through the exact same things you would when you throw a baseball or you hit a, a tennis ball, right, in a, in a serve. Um, so understanding that is, is very, very crucial. Um, now in, in volleyball, the first part of that, that phase or the, the hip rotation, though it is important, it's not the most important. So I, I explain that so that people understand it just for, for overall understanding, but that is not the most important part. So um, in order to actually do it, if you wanted to do it and understand it just from a biomechanics standpoint, like say we, we break down the skill of throwing a baseball. When you throw a baseball, the first thing that you push off of, if you're a right-handed pitcher, is your back leg. So when you're, when you're driving off of the leg, good pitchers do something called, they, they call it getting the butt out. And so that means that they're heavily contracting their right glute. And when you contract your glute, your right glute, what happens is you first rotate your pelvis. That's the, that's the muscle that's responsible for rapidly rotating the pelvis forward. And so that, that first push, that huge horizontal distance that you cover, that's half of their velocity, half. So that step is very important. That step for volleyball players is your step close. So I'll kind of relate the two together. So the step close is that first big push. Now, again, uh, there's a lot of individual variation with foot position. You'll see a lot of people really heavily turn that left foot. You'll see other people like myself, maybe turn both of my feet 30 degrees. Um, so just to clarify, step close is your last two steps on your approach. Yes, the, the penultimate step as, yeah. as some other people call it. Um, 
So for a right-handed person, you're usually, doesn't have to be, but you're usually pushing off of that, that left leg. Um, and so all you're doing is you're just gaining speed. You're just gaining energy. Um, the, the faster, the more powerful that is, the more distance you cover, usually that means you're going to develop more energy, more speed in order to transfer that energy upward. So if, again, if we're going back to the pitch, now the pelvis is rapidly rotated forward, but the torso is still open, right? So a lot of people, it's hard, it's hard to visualize those things because usually people associate pelvic and torso rotation as the same unit, but they're separate units. So for a pitcher, the good ones, right? The, the, the butt will get out, right? So the, the pelvis will rotate forward and their torso is still open. And, and a, a big part of why that torso is still open is actually muscle contraction, right? Muscles cause bones to move of the left side of the body. So again, if you're a right-handed pitcher and you're, and you're trying to keep that torso open, you need to activate muscle to hold that open. So that comes from the left side of the body, the left oblique. So now what ends up happening is you're coiling up the body, right? You're basically in, in, in essence, twisting the torso, right? Coiling yourself up. Very, very similar to a volleyball player. So when you take off of the ground in volleyball, what should happen is that pelvis should rotate forward. Now, in a, in a situation where you have a goofy-footed uh, a hitter, which again is not wrong, their feet will be completely closed, which means their pelvis will be closed, right? So they're taking off of the ground with the pelvis already closed. But what can they do? They can rotate the torso open. And again, that's with the oblique. So understanding that the obliques, those are the muscles that line your torso. Those muscles are extremely important in sport. And they're the reason why our torso can rotate open and rotate closed. So the muscles, those muscles are responsible for torso rotation as well as, well as lateral tilting. So the, the obliques are really the engine of the human body. So if we go back to the baseball pitch and we'll relate it to the volleyball swing. So the pelvis is closed. The torso is open. That means your core musculature. So your right oblique, if you're a right-handed hitter is now what we call eccentrically loaded. So if you just think of it as a rubber band, the right oblique is now stretching. So you can think of it an easy way to think about it. If you're bench pressing, right? You take the weight off of the bench on your way down, you start to feel your, your pectoralis major start to stretch, right? Those are those rubber bands loading. And that's why it's so much easier to push the weight back up because you've actually, you've, you've built up elastic energy in those muscles. If you ever try to start the bench right from your chest, very, very difficult to push because you have no elastic energy gained. And so, that same principle happens in the torso. So you've coiled yourself up and you've stretched that right oblique. And so now you have more energy or the possibility for more energy because you've twisted yourself. That's really where a lot of the force is. That is the most important part. So a guy named um, uh, Tom House uh, guru of 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 uh, arm swing stuff. Um, Tom Brady trains with them. Trains a lot of guys, and he was able to understand that 
that's the biggest um, uh, driver of velocity. So the separation between your pelvis and your torso. So if you can get your torso perpendicular to your pelvis, then you're going to create more force because of that elastic energy building, right? That it's called in, in muscle physiology, it's eccentric loading. So the muscle is lengthening, but it's under a load. So just think of that as tension, right? The, that rubber band is, is, is stretched out. That's why you can rotate faster. So if you think about it, if your pelvis is still open and your torso is open, you have no elastic energy gained in your torso or your obliques, which makes it much harder to rotate the torso at speed. So that's why if you're a hitter, your whole goal is to try and separate the pelvis and the torso. But the problem is what ends up happening a lot, when, when you're a coach and you don't have an understanding of this concept, you do what most coaches do and you say, just turn your feet, right? They think that, that your feet are the most important part because you'll see, right? A lot of people do the same thing. They like to turn their feet or that left foot turns really heavily. That, at least in, in my opinion and in my experience, is just their, their brain, their body, trying to get them in a position like a tennis serve. So it's preparing them to rotate. But when you do that, which is not wrong, by the way, it's just that the majority of people, when they, when they open up both segments really heavily, is they have a, a really hard time of rotating the pelvis first and keeping the torso open. So what I look for or what I do when, I tr when I'm training people is I'll first look at what they do and then decide on the best way to go about separating their hip and torso. So if they heavily turn their feet and they can't separate or they don't have good glute activation, which is, again, it's very, very hard to do as you're taking off of the ground, right? Then what I'll actually have them do is I'll try to just have them get their feet straight forward so that what ends up happening and this is just kind of testing things out, is when, they're, when their feet are forward, what else is forward or closed? It's their pelvis. So once their, their pelvis is closed, then all of a sudden what they have to do is they have to rotate in the opposite direction. And so they're actually rotating their torso open, which again gets, gets back to that whole idea of loading the torso. And so all of a sudden when they start to feel their torso actually twisting, they can usually produce more force, right? Um, so again, it's it's a it's very very complex. So let's now we'll we'll, we'll move on. I have a question. Also loaded. Sorry, go for it. No, this is first of all, this is amazing stuff because even even me, I'm thinking about how I train my players, and yeah. you 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 made an interesting point. So you know you want the pelvic and the torso to be perpendicular to each other. Is that yeah. correct? Yes. So when we train athletes and we're saying to stay open to your setter right so you can track the ball when you stay open to your setter by default aren't you bringing your your hip back and your pelvic back well that's what we said earlier right is that that most coaches understand that those two segments work in in work together but 
you want to separate them. You, you need to work, uh, it, it, you have to work them separately. So most people will open up their feet, most. That will cause the pelvis and the torso to open. Right. However, some people, like myself, um, will add people that are goofy-footed, right? That means their, their feet are already going to be closed, which means their pelvis are going to be closed, right? The, the feet or the, the pelvis follow the feet. Right. So just because my feet are closed or I don't open them as heavily as someone else does not mean that I cannot open the torso, right? Or that my pelvis is all of a sudden going to magically open, right? The whole idea is to close down the pelvis, right? So a lot of people get caught on, they think, right, rotation, which is good, but they think that this thing must happen. I can tell you right now from experience, only super high level athletes can close down the pelvis really, really well while also opening up the torso at the same time. So again, when you leave the ground, you have to be jumping rotationally. Remember, you can't jump vertically and then magically rotate in midair. It doesn't work like that. There's no forces. So when you jump, you have to jump in a rotational fashion, meaning you have to push slightly off of your back leg. That's why when you slow down any good hitter, what do you see the right foot doing? You see the right foot starting to raise much earlier than the left one and the heels coming off of the ground. Why do you think that is? Well, it's to close down the pelvis. That's the first point in which they're trying to rotate the pelvis forward. But again, that's a high level um, athletic move, right? In order to do that. And you would have had to train. You would have had to be been a thrower for the most part at a very young age. If you haven't thrown, like a lot of girls, unfortunately, because their their fathers never wanted to throw with them as kids, which is kind of sad, they don't have that pattern built in. And so what, what do you think ends up happening? They don't know how to close their pelvis. So what happens? They have to rotate both at the same time, which means less opportunity to gain elastic energy. So again, what I have to do a lot of the time to the, the, the people that I'm training is I have to say, hey, look, I know your coach is telling you this, but you have to trust me that if you, if you keep doing it this way, you'll never, ever close your pelvis and you're going to have a very hard time separating the two. So, again, it's not that it's wrong. Some people are very good at doing it, right? But you have to have workarounds for people that have never thrown. Like if you have a kid that have ne has never thrown and you're trying to get them to, to rotate their pelvis for it, that's not going to happen. Um, and also, right, the, the uh, so we've gone through, so, so trying to backtrack, we've gone through two phases, right? Pelvis has gone forward. That's step one. If they're a goofy-footed hitter or they don't tend to open their feet a lot, the pelvis is already closed, which is actually a great thing. Because when you take off of the ground, what can you now do? You can now rotate your torso open, right? So again, that left oblique, which is used to hold the torso open in the pitch, is now being utilized to rotate you open. So if I'm on the outside and I'm a right-handed hitter, right, my pelvis is slightly closed already at takeoff, what am I going to do now? I'm going to rotate open, right, so I can actually 
have some rotational force to the ball. So now my, my hip and my torso are separated, right? If you're, if you're lucky. And now I can rapidly rotate at the ball. Now this is where the most common error happens. And this is one that I had to face even as an All-American outside hitter. As I thought that power came from the physical contraction, the, met, the, the conscious contraction and forcing of my arm at the ball. This is one of the reasons why so many people come to me for these particular reasons, because one, usually their coach can't read what's happening, right? They usually say, oh, just rotate more. <clears throat> but it really <clears throat> has nothing to do with them rotating their bodies more. They, are, they already understand that. The holdup is that that incorrect assumption or the act of contracting, which means shortening, right? <clears throat> Consciously shortening the internal rotators of the shoulder. So the muscles that cause the arm to come forward are being consciously shortened. In, in proper mechanics, those muscles are unconsciously activated through something called a stretch reflex. So the whole idea up in the shoulder joint is to gain as much range of motion as possible. In order to gain range of motion, your shoulder joint has to be relaxed. Right? That's one of the, the very, very counterintuitive things of throwing, hitting, all of those things, is that the shoulder joint is not activated. Right, The only muscles that are really activated are the ones behind the shoulder, right? especially the rhomboid, the muscle that lines the, the scapula and attaches right near the spine. That's how the, the whole shoulder joint or scapula gets pulled towards the spine. That's very, very important for stabilization. Um, but going back to that, that, that mistake that most people make, they have to relax the shoulder joint. And in, in, in doing so, what happens is your shoulder goes into a greater amount of external rotation. Just means that the shoulder is rotating much, much more, much further, which means you are gaining elastic energy. Again, you are eccentrically loading. Just try to think of the rubber bands, right? The pectoralis major, latissimus dorsi, subscapularis, all of those muscles are stretching now. When those muscles stretch and they gain elastic energy, right? It's just like a rubber band. You let the rubber band go and it'll fire. So that's what you're trying to do in the shoulder joint. But it's very, very counterintuitive because physiologically we can shorten our muscles, right? On command. But in the arm swing, in that last phase, right, phase number three, you need to allow the shoulder joint to gain elastic energy, right? Very, very, very similar. This is one of the posts that I, that I put up on, on my, my Instagram. The, it's the exact same concept as a kick in soccer, right? So when you kick a, volley, or a, kick a soccer ball properly, the first thing that you do is you activate your hip uh, extensors, right? Your glutes, 
because you're needing to fire the leg back as fast as you can behind you. Why? Because we're trying to stretch the muscles on the front of the hip joint, the hip flexors. When those gain elastic energy, right, and you utilize the torso to rotate, what happens? The leg automatically fires. An improper kick is a conscious activation of the hip flexors, also known as a toe poke, right? That's a terrible kick. You don't hit, you don't kick with a lot of force. So that exact same thing is happening in the shoulder joint, but instead of flexion extension, it's rotation. In the double arm lift, it is flexion extension. So when you're when you're doing a double double arm lift, you are doing the exact same thing you would with a soccer kick. You're using your shoulder external, I'm sorry, shoulder extensors, right? to explode the arms upwards. Once they explode upwards, guess what? There's no more activation, right? You explode them up hard enough, they stretch the shoulder flexors, those gain elastic energy, and then what happens? They just whip as fast as possible. So that's the exact same concept as a soccer kick. And sometimes, so I have, I have two posts that I usually put up, one of the double arm lift and then one of the swing, to try and help people that may have not have thrown to understand those two are almost identical, right? Your limbs are just kind of flopping around in space. The torso is the engine. Uh, but if you were to ask me, you know, what I work most with people on, it's that right there. A lot of them still force their arm forward. So if you feel that jarring motion at your shoulder, you're trying to like club the ball, even though it may feel like you're trying to, or, or may feel like you're producing more force, you're not. Because you're not gaining elastic energy. You're not increasing your range of motion in the shoulder. Right? So the, the best pitchers, if you watch in, the, in um, the majors, right, you'll see their arms almost um, horizontal to the ground, right? The good ones in external rotation. And now, obviously, in the pitch, the pitch is slightly different because it's a little more outside the body. That's why they have more problems with their elbow, right? They're on a collateral ligament. There's a lot more torque on the elbow. Because we have to contact at 12 o'clock, we have less torque on the elbow, but more shoulder problems, more impingement problems, right? Because that, that humerus has to sit real tight to the acromion, right? And that's where you have problems with impingement. So... A lot of info, I know, but that's what basically covers how the human body is producing force, right? And, and that proper activation or inactivation, I should say, of those internal rotators up in the shoulder. Wow. Wow. Okay. I got to listen. I got to re-listen to this entire episode because that was some great, great stuff. Okay. I got some questions. Yes. Uh, I'm kind of amazed because as you're, as you're describing and going through the mechanics, I'm just reflecting back on my last 12 years of coaching. Yeah. And I'm just thinking that like, I didn't, I can't believe you could break it down further and how much more effective the swing would be by taking into consideration everything you're saying. So the phase one, I really like the pelvic, and um, torso rotation. So you want them to be um, perpendicular to each other. Right. Uh, now, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think back to, and we, we kind of talked about this earlier. Okay, let's go to the goofy footed jumpers. Yep. So let's say you're a middle 
for yeah. example. So you're a middle, and as you're taught as a middle is to go into your setter, right? You know, get make sure you're, there's some separation, come off the, the shoulder of your setter, and stay open to your setter. Right. So you can track the ball and you can do it. Now, as a goofy footer, right, you're closing. Let's say you're right-handed. You're, you're closing with that right foot, meaning your pelvic is now facing the net, correct? Yep. yep. So, and you've actually said that that's, an, that's okay. Yes, because, actually, it actually is better. <laughs> okay, so can you, can you talk? Because I know I have, I have, I, I always get this question about goofy footer jumpers. Um, so just reiterate, why is that okay? And how can we still maximize our, our force and track the ball as well. Well, so there's a, the assumption is that because your pelvis is closed, you can't look at the ball. You, you can turn your head, right? Your, your, your head, your eyes, you can use at any time. So That's just because your pelvis is closed, doesn't mean you can't look at the ball. So when you're approaching, most middles, right, they'll open to their setter because they've been trained to open, right? As if right. your setter can't put the ball in the right spot, right? The, the, the whole idea of, oh, you need to give them a window, okay, fine. Your setter can put the ball in front of you. They can figure that out. Now, what happens a lot though, however, right? When you, when you train someone to open, right? Most of the time that they say 90 degrees, right? 90 degrees to your setter, what ends up happening? One, when they take off, and again, it's, it's not, this is not the most important thing, but you, if you're wanting to talk about velocity and if you're wanting to talk about shot selection, and the ability to hit multiple shots. This is one thing that you have to understand. If you're open 90 degrees, which means your shoulders are perpendicular to the net, you can only get force parallel to the body. Right. So if you now, in this, in this instance, we'll talk about shot selection. We'll get back to velocity in a second. If you now have to hit across your body to position one, what can you not do anymore? You cannot pronate your forearm because your humerus is all already blocked, right, from the body. So what happens when a middle is perpendicular to the net and has to go back to area one? If they're that open, most of the time, not always, most of the time, what do they end up doing? They slice to area one. It's very simple because they cannot rotate their palm over. So when you teach a middle to do that, <clears throat> you're already essentially cutting off a lot of force to position one. So what is the optimal position? In, in my opinion, it's not 90 degrees, it's 45, yeah. right? With the torso, because again, you're not, you don't have to rotate the torso that far back. And, and there's, if you take the spine, thoracic and, and lumbar region, it's like three degrees and two degrees of rotation per vertebrae. So it's usually between 37 and 45 degrees of torso rotation. You don't have to open any more of that. If you open any more, it's diminishing returns. It's not going to happen. It's like a pitcher in baseball trying to over-rotate to gain more force. It doesn't work that way. And so when you also train middles to open their feet a lot, when they can't close down their pelvis, right? So when you have a goofy footed middle, their pelvis is already closed. And guess what they can do when they jump off the ground? They rotate their torso open. What does that do? It eccentrically loads the torso, right? It's not as though you can't open. That's the whole point, right? Is you have to open your torso. It's very, very important. So again, people have different ways of getting there, 
right? Again, from my experience, and I've done a lot of this, only very, very, very high-level athletes that have gone through throwing, right, that have already had that pattern built into their body, right, that sequence of muscle activation, they're the ones that can do it. But people that have not gone through throwing, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, very, very hard time. And so, again, if I have a goofy foot in the middle, I'm like, great, it's perfect. Their pelvis is going to be closed. They can always open up about 45 degrees. And now they can actually get force to area one. And guess what? I would actually rather have my middle jump, right, to have their torso. Their, their pelvis is already rotated. To have their torso almost parallel to the net because now as a middle blocker right on the other side you're like i don't know what this guy's about to do or what this girl's about to do because they're facing me and so when i rotate to area one what do you think most middles will do they'll probably reach that way but now what do i have at my disposal i have pronation available to me which allows me to to have continued force when i can do this I have continued force. And guess what? Pronation is the natural uh, movement of the arm anyway, right? In pitching, right? There's pronating happening at the very end. And the reason for that is the forearm muscles actually take the brunt of the force. If you go the other way, which again, is it, it happens. We have to do that in volleyball. But if you don't pronate, if you supinate, very, very heavy forces on the elbow joint. And you'll actually end up, right, over time, beating up that elbow joint quite a bit. So again, that's my, that's my own opinion, but through experience, right. And actually logical thought, you can start to understand why, right. But what do, what do coaches constantly rely on? Open, 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 open. And yet they forget that power, right. Is, is something that comes from something being closed and the other part being open and shot selection, as well as deception, which is something that is so, so, so vital for volleyball players, right? What is, what's, the, what's the saying that you hear a lot? Look one way, hit the other. Well, that's what you want to do, right? As a middle, as an outside, as an opposite. That's the whole idea. But again, I find myself having to go through that stuff with the, with the people that I train just so that they understand. I, I, I tell them, you know, I'm not trying to get you in trouble with your coach. But I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to, you're not going to be able to hit this shot. And, you know, everyone knows it. If you really think about it, you, you see middles facing five. What are you going to tell your middle blocker to do? You're going to take away five with one hand in the middle of the court. So they only can slice back to one. It's very, very simple. So anyway, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Right. And no, that's, that's really good information, especially for goofy footers who, I mean, I've, I mean, I've trained hundreds of athletes as well. And I get the same question. I, I have to change my footwork. I have to, you know, I have to go left, right, left instead of the other way, because that's, that's what they're taught to do. So it's interesting right. to get that different perspective. And then if you're you know, a regular, if you have a regular approach, I think the key, and I think that I've learned this today is that when you open, well, like when you jump naturally, you're open to the setter. If you're, if, if you're regular, I don't want to call it regular foot, I don't know, regular approach, um, then as you jump, you have to drive your pelvic first, followed by your torso. Is that correct? So, yeah. So the pelvis has to go first. But again, it's very hard. So there's two, there's two muscle activation things that have to occur, right, in each segment. So from the hips down, that's segment one. From the torso to the shoulder joint, that's basically segment two. So 
in both of those segments on opposite sides, there has to be muscle activation in order to separate. So if you jump off of the ground, right glute, if you're right-handed, needs to activate. Left oblique needs to activate to open you in different directions, right? So the pelvis is closing down, but the torso is opening up. So sometimes what I'll, what I'll actually have athletes do that don't have any concept of what that is, I'll just have them kneel on the ground, both knees on the ground. And all I'll do is I'll have them face the net. I'll be on the side of them and I'll just toss and they have to open to me and they have to close, right? That's what you're doing. That's, that's what the human body does to create force. Golf swing, what do you do? Open, close, football throw, open, close. It's all of the same stuff. So, but, sorry. So do you, so when, when you're jumping, you're taking off on the ground, yeah. do you want your pelvis facing the net prior to takeoff? That would be that would be someone that's goofy footed. Most people are not goofy footed. Yeah. So they're usually what ends up, you'll see most of the time. Some people like to go ninety degrees. Some people like to go forty five. Some people like to go forty five and ninety with the feet. Right. Yeah. So you're going to see that happen a ton. But what you won't see is a lot of separation because when you do that. A lot of people don't jump with enough rotational energy and they can't close down the pelvis. And I want to make, I want to be very clear just because you don't separate the hip and the shoulders or the pelvis and the torso, that does not mean that you cannot be successful, right? We're, yeah. we're trying to talk in terms of optimal force, optimal velocity in the shoulder. So again, it's, it, I will train someone to, to improve them, to maximize them, but that has nothing to do with vision, the ability to move the ball around. You know, this yeah, is yeah. one aspect and it's arguable whether or not it's that important. But again, if we're talking about in terms of maximizing someone, um, you want to try to close down that pelvis. So most people will be at about between 45 and 90 degrees. Right. So then when you jump at whatever, yeah. however your footwork is, what, when you yeah. jump, now your pelvic, your pelvis is facing, you know, a 45 degree angle. Then after you jump, now you want to rotate back with your hips. Is that correct? Not the hips. So the hips and the pelvis, that's the same thing. Sorry, it's the same thing. I'm sorry. Your, uh, your, your torso. The torso. So remember when you leave the ground, you have to be close. This happens simultaneously. Try to think of a baseball pitch again, right? Okay. When they're pushing off of the back leg at the same time, they're pushing they're activating the glutes. So the, the pelvis is rotating towards home plate, but the torso is doing what? It's still open. Right. So we also have to keep our torso open or if you're goofy footed or don't open your feet a ton, you have to rotate the torso open, right? But those things have to happen in unison, right? So the pelvis needs to close while the torso is rotating to an open position. Oh, that's what I missed. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So the pelvis is closing yes. while you're, uh, while, while you're open. Yes. Uh, I see. And then the, and then the second mo the second movement will be, then you rotate the torso. Yes. Now, so is th now this is, sorry, go on. Uh, that's, 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 that's one way of doing it, right? The other way, which will, you'll see a lot of as well. And this, again, you have to be a high, a lot of high level athletes to do it. They'll open themselves just like a pitcher would or like in a tennis serve, right? They take off and they go pelvis 
and their torso is still open, just like a pitcher would, right? But you still need muscle activation to hold yourself open, right? So basically you can get there in those two ways, right? So it's, you can think of getting to that same position of hip shoulder separation in two different ways. You can either take off with the hips already closed and open the torso, or you take off with the hips and the torso open and you do exactly what a pitcher would do, right? And you close the pelvis as you're taking off. But again, through my own experience, the people that do that the most have the hardest time trying to get proper sequencing, right? So again, either way, you can get there, right? You can get there in the same fashion. It just depends on what your prior experiences have been. So again, if you're a pitcher, like I, I trained some pitchers, they have it locked down already because why? They've done that for years, you know? And so that, that muscle pattern is already built in and, and we, don't have to, we don't even have to go over it, right? Because it's basically the exact same motion. It's just in the air now. Right. And then the, the last thing I'll add to that is, um, yep. I, I think this was phase three. Well, you said when you're um, engaging the shoulder, it, it should be extremely relaxed and loose. Is that correct? Yes. So, so again, in order to have the arm go back into external rotation, it, it takes a little bit of muscle activation. So the external rotators, the muscles that cause the arm to externally rotate, those have to activate so that the arm is thrown back into external rotation. So now as the arm is going backwards, the torso is doing what? It's rotating forward. So now you have oppositional rotation, right? Two segments moving in opposite directions, just like a rubber band, right? You're pulling in opposite directions, you're rotating in opposite directions. That's how you eccentrically load or you stretch those rubber bands of the shoulder, right? That's very, very critical to high level velocity. Right. Wow. Man, listeners, you guys got some great info today. On, well, info, on the, man. Oh man, it's a ton. I'm, I'm going to have to listen to this again myself. Um, <laughs> Because yeah, no, just thinking about the the breakdown of of the of the mechanics of a of a swing. It's notice we we didn't talk a lot on on how to manipulate the wrist and and the forearm or tricep. We talked about you know the torso and the pelvis. That's something that I never thought that I would be discussing heavily when it comes to your arm swing, uh, which is pretty cool. Almost everything. Yeah, which is really cool. I mean, I I mean, I always teach, and I and I've been teaching this for years that you have to engage the core without a doubt. Most of the power comes from the core. Having said that, that's as far as I took it. I never took it to the extent where you just described today, which is really cool to know. I like yep. that. Um, okay, but I don't want to keep you too much longer. So let's, I just want to get into one last thing. And, I, and this is probably the most important thing um, relative to what you're doing right now. Um, I want to talk about your, your let them play movement. And for my listeners that aren't uh, familiar with this, you know, explain it to them um, and let them know what it is and how they can get involved. I think it's really important. So listeners, uh, listen up because I think this is a really important thing. Yeah, and, and thanks for bringing it up. Um, so, so Let Them Play is a socially conscious brand, um, similar to how kind of a, a Tom's model would be. So Tom's shoes, how they first started off is that they would, you would buy shoes and they would send shoes to, you know, people in need. Now, a lot of, there was, there's been a lot of talk about that. There's been research and studies done. Um so we're doing something very similar is the, the clothing that you buy from the brand. Part of that purchase goes to funding the business because the business has to operate. But the rest of that money goes to 
providing or buying or purchasing equipment. So volleyballs and volleyball nets for developing countries. Um, and the whole reason why it got started was because of social media. Um, and it was actually started by uh, a, a message I got a long time ago from a person in the Philippines. And they had just asked, hey, you guys, do you guys have any old volleyballs and nets that you could possibly send? Um, and, you know, I, it was the first time that I had ever been in contact with, with someone that was in need. You know, here in the, here in the West, we don't, I mean, volleyballs and a net, that's like universal. We'd never even think about that stuff. And so kind of hit me, but then I had lost the message because I get so many, it, it fell out and I, and I couldn't find it. And then all of a sudden I connected with these, uh, these guys in India, in Kerala, India. And I kind of saw the same thing, you know, they're playing on dirt courts, their net was old and ratty. And, and, you know, I kind of just asked and said, Hey, how do you guys get your equipment? And how do you guys get your nets? And they said, Oh, you know, well, we, we pool all our money in the village and, you know, it's kind of costly. And I said, Hey, you know, how much, how much does it cost? And it was, you know, it was some amount that's like, I, it, it was, it seemed like a joke. And I, and, you know, I don't want to step on someone's toes. I don't want to make people feel like if they need help. I just said, Hey, would you, can I, can I help you guys out? And that kind of started. And, and I had sent them some money to buy a new net, a couple of balls. And like I, this, it made their year, you know, it was like, it was one of the most, I don't know. It, it was just pretty amazing that, that, that little amount of money could make that giant of a difference. Um, and so that's kind of how it started. And then I connected with another group in, in Ghana, um, an, another guy by the name of Kony. And he actually has his own organization that he set up with his own money to train kids. And they actually get similar to how we have here. These kids get scholarships to go and play. You know, it, it, it gives them something to drive for, keeps them out of trouble. And it's like... <laughs> And I did the same thing. I sent money down there and, and, you know, helped them buy some balls. And they sent me this amazing video of the whole group, you know, thanking me. And it, it just felt, it felt really good. Um, and I was like, man, I wonder if we can do this on a larger scale. And, um, but it's interesting, you know, I, I don't know how, how it's really taken on Instagram um, and, the, and the broader community, but at the end of the day, the stuff you buy, it's, it's tr the money is trying to go to helping these people out. And if we can, and if we can do it on a larger scale, you know, we can really do some damage and, and help out a lot of people. So that's kind of where and how it started. So for my listeners, if you guys want to, um, where can they go to help support the Let Them Play movement? So they can actually go to my Instagram page at TorqueVB, T-O-R-Q-V-B. And there's the link. It says the, the link to the website, Let Them Play. You can click on the link and then you can buy some merchandise. There's t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hoodies. Um, and if they want to have a little bit more information, they can read on the site how it started. There's also a let them play highlight link on the Instagram. They can tap that. They can watch uh, the advertisement from the people in Ghana, which I thought was very cool. Um, nice. And to the people that have, have helped out, appreciate it. And then for those of you that, that want to make a difference um, in, in, these kids' lives. I mean, it's kind of an easy way to do it. Now, you know, it, it may be that 
some people may just want to donate money. Um, I'm not sure exactly how we're going to do that yet, but I'm happy to take payments from people. Somehow we can figure this out, you know, Venmo or something. And I'm just going to basically send it to these organizations. And maybe that's a better way of doing it. I just, I don't know yet. My, my uh, thought process was if we can create a brand that has a lot more influence, it can just, we can just chase down a lot more dollars. So. Right. Well, I'll make sure I link it up in the show notes, man. I'll link your, um, your Instagram account handle as well as the website in the show notes. And I'm assuming this is the same. Uh, they can, they can hit you up on Instagram if they want to get in touch you with training as well, because I yes. mean, I mean yes. let's, let's think about the stuff that we learned today. This is what a taste of what you could, you could potentially gain um, by getting Isaac to train you. So yeah, so same thing, Instagram. Yep. So, so, um, you can email me the, the, you just press the email link on the, the, the page. Um, you can go to primeathletes.net. That's the facility that I train out of. You can actually press call and it will go to my booking manager. Um, and I, for, for the people that actually want to go and get trained, it is, it, it, it does cost a pretty penny. Um, you know, this, it, it, takes a lot of money to rent the facilities um, for it to have me do this for a living to actually make it worth my while. So it, it can be costly, but I can tell you even just in a session with a lot of people that I first meet, you can understand a lot. You can get a lot of stuff done. Um, but you know, th there's a, there's a huge wait list, you know, there's months and, and, and I try to get to everybody. I really do. And if I can't see anybody, there's a lot of great info on the Instagram itself. So I don't, it's funny. I don't think a lot of people even know that IGTV exists, but if you press the IGTV tab, there's a lot of tutorials that I put on there to try to, to get the information out. And there's uh, I've had people be very self-sufficient. They go on there, they, they kind of test it out. And they're like, Oh my gosh, I've, I've never figured this out before. So a lot of good information there too. Great. All right, man. I always do this. Final words. Do you have anything, any final thoughts for our listeners? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, what, what you get in is, is what you get out. So for those of you that, that really, really want to make a, a lasting change and you really want to go towards your goals, it takes a lot of work, a lot of, of effort, um, and you have to be willing to put in that amount of work to get where you want to go. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that want to come in and train and they think that's the last step, you know, for, for those of us that have played at high levels, we have put in blood, sweat, and tears. Um, so, you know, you really have to work at it if you want to get to those, those levels. And the great part about it is if you don't make it to those levels, but you put in everything you had, you can't really have any regrets. So work as hard as you can, put in everything you can, and you'll walk away happy either way. Perfect. And I can't agree more. I mean, it's, this is just a, a part of the process. Like oh, yeah. there's a ton of that goes into, you know, playing at the highest level and mm -hmm. whether you're a coach trying to coach at the highest level or a player trying to play at the highest level, um, it's all the same stuff. So Isaac, thank you so much, my man. I really appreciate your time coming out and listen, you guys are gonna have to listen to this episode again, because there was so much valuable information in here. 
that if you're driving right now, when you get to a place where you can sit down and take some notes, if you're not driving, you're on the subway or whatever the case is, you may have to listen again and take some notes um, because it was a ton of good stuff that even myself, I've been coaching the game for 12, 13 years and I just breaking down simple things that I even I haven't thought about is unreal. So that's, that's pretty cool. And I hope you guys reach out. You can hit up Isaac on his Instagram. I'm going to put his, his, uh, I'm going to put his information in the show notes. So you can get in contact with him because I think this is revolutionary stuff. I don't know how long this has been around for, but this needs to be talked about more. Isaac, Isaac you need to be in every college gym teaching this stuff because, <laughs> or in club. Like clubs need to book you and like they need to get you out talking to their athletes because if athletes can figure this out at the younger age, my goodness, how much more, uh, how much just biomechanically and better and more efficient they're going to be as players going forward. So I totally like, agree. Like club coaches, man, you guys got to yeah book this guy. It's, it's that simple. Anyways, uh, I appreciate it. I'll see you guys next week on another episode of the Volleyball by Design podcast. Take care, everyone. All right, cue the music. Look, are you at the stage you want to be in your volleyball journey? How would it feel to get clarity on your training? And instead of taking months to get better, you could improve in weeks, if not days. When I was a young coach and player, I felt this way all the time. The truth is, after I got some great advice on how to be efficient, my learning curve grew exponentially. Let me show you how to be more efficient and effective in this game. I invite you to check out CoachBtraining.com for more resources that you can use to take your game to the next level. I look forward to helping you reach your volleyball goals.